Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Walensky. We're talking about books, about theater, about film, and sometimes about politics. Welcome to Book Waves. I'm Richard Walensky. My guest is Eddie Muller. Eddie Muller is the founder of the Film Noir Foundation. Eddie Muller has three books on film noir. Dark City, The Lost Worlds of Film Noir, Dark City Dames, and The Art of Noir. There are also two novels, The Distance and Shadow Boxer. And Eddie Muller introduces once a week noir films on Turner Classic Movies, TCM. And we're going to go into that in a little bit. But the reason that you're here now is because of a film that came out of your work in film preservation, which is a 1950 version of Richard Wright's Native Son, starring, of all people, Richard Wright himself, and it was filmed in Argentina. How did you hear of this film originally? Because when I first heard of it, my jaw dropped. (laughs) Yes, as did mine. It's actually a very interesting saga. And I want to preface this, Richard, just by saying that credit needs to go where it is due. I am involved in the revival of this film, let's say, but not actually directly involved in its restoration. That was that was done by the Library of Congress. So our tax dollars at work, that's a good thing. And there are many, many other people who, who took a long road to get this film back in circulation. And I, while I play a part, I don't want anybody to think that I'm the driving force behind the restoration of this film. But to answer your question, I do an annual noir festival in Washington, D.C., actually in Silver Spring, Maryland, the AFI Theater in Silver Spring, Maryland. And many years ago, I'm going to say it was at least 10, perhaps more, I was approached there by a man named Edgardo Krebs, who is an anthropologist at the Smithsonian. And he was friends with a a colleague of mine, Fernando Pena, who is in Buenos Aires. And Fernando had deposited a 16 millimeter print of Native Son at the Library of Congress. And he believed that it was the only truly complete version of the film, perhaps in existence. He had seen the uh, the badly edited version of the film, but this 16 print in his own collection, he deposited it at the Library of Congress in the hopes that they could restore it at some point. And, and that's what I saw. Edgardo sort of arranged along with the AFI theater to, uh, to have a private screening of the film for me. And, and that was honestly, uh, the first time I saw it was the first time I had heard of it. And, and making the occasion really surreal and unique was the only other viewer with us that day was Gonzalo Sanchez de Losada, who was the former president of Bolivia, who had worked on the film as the assistant director and had complete recall of making the movie. And now he is an ambassador, I, th- I believe, and 
uh, was in Washington, D.C., and Edgardo invited him to the screening as well so he could clue us in on the, the history of the movie. So, so that's how I came to see it the first time. And the thing that got me involved is when the film was over and everybody looked at me and like, what do you think? I said, I think it's a film noir. It is. And that was sort of how my involvement began. Speaking of film noir, I mean, I'm watching this and starting to think much as you did, why am I watching this and why did I watch that introduction by Eddie Muller? Which, by the way, is excellent. It's You have to see it before you see the film. I hope they show that uh, when it shows up on VOD and TCM. Kino will definitely show it when it's uh, streaming on demand, but I'm actually doing an entirely new introduction for TCM with Jacqueline Stewart, my colleague at TCM, who, who is a cinema and, and, professor in Chicago. She's a specialist in silent film, but she also has, has taught Richard Wright at the university and knows quite a bit more about him as a man and a writer than I do. So it's a very good combo. And that will be uh, during Black History Month in February 2021. Correct. As you were speaking just now, I kept thinking, you know, it is noir. It is a well-known book, certainly, and as you know, there's a version in the 90s that came out, and uh, a couple of years ago, there was a play version that I saw over at Marin Theatre Company. So it's not exactly unknown, and it is a noir. Did you wonder why you'd never heard of it? I quickly learned why I never heard of it, because of all the travails they had in getting the film distributed especially in this country. I mean, the film could not be made in this country. And so that was the whole appeal, was the director of the film, Pierre Chanel, who is a Belgian, French-Belgian, uh, and had directed a lot of movies in France in the 30s and 40s. He had fled Europe during the war years and relocated to Argentina, where he was making movies. But he had met Richard Wright in France and said, you know, we really should make Native Son. And it's interesting because Chanel was the first director to adapt The Postman Always Rings Twice as a film in France in 1939. Yeah, let me interrupt you on that. Is that film available anywhere? I'd love to see it. Um, you have to really dig. <laughs> I have seen it, and it's a, it's a fine film, not quite as good as Lucino Visconti's unauthorized adaptation of The Postman Always Rings Twice, Ossessioni, that he made three years later. But Chanel convinced Wright that they needed to make a film version of this. And then eventually when Wright came to Argentina as sort of artist in exile, that's when Chanel and a producer named Jaime Prades put this whole package together and the weird part about it was apparently the money was in place to make the film. Wright never really wanted to play the central character of Bigger Thomas, but they convinced him to do it. Chanel was very persuasive and said, you know, all you have to do is just live his nightmare. You wrote it, so how can you not understand it? Just do it in front of the camera. But he was in his 40s and yeah. Bigger yes. is like 20. Yes. Bigger's a kid. Older people don't react the way Bigger would. You're absolutely right. I mean, this is one of the you know flaws of the movie is that unbelievably Richard Wright is not well cast as his own character. But my understanding was that they needed to make the movie when they had the window of opportunity to make the movie. 
And so casting Richard Wright became a viable solution lest they lose the budget. You know, and if you've read the book, and, and your point is very well taken, Richard, that he behaves in a, in a way that an older, more mature man probably wouldn't. But then again, I would suggest that if that's you're, what you're focusing on in the movie, you, you might not be seeing the forest for the trees, you know? It's not a particularly good film, but boy, is it interesting. It's a very interesting film. You see, Richard, this is the challenge. Right. We live in a culture where everything has to be the greatest thing ever made in order for anybody to pay any attention to it. And interesting and fascinating and compelling don't quite equal great (laughs) in our present circumstance. But I found this film to be utterly fascinating because uh, the backstory of the film is as intriguing as the movie itself and why the film could not be made in the United States. I mean, if you know the story of Native Son, it should be obvious that in mid 20th century America, not only are they not going to make the film, but you would never get wide distribution for a film in which a, a black man kills a white woman, it kills an affluent white woman and covers up the crime you know, I don't want to give away the plot if people haven't seen it or are looking forward to seeing the movie, um, but it, it is very much a noir. A crime is committed. There's a question as to whether it's intentional or whether it's an accident, and the system grinds this impoverished, poor black suspect into the dirt for this, and it, and it's just his his story of his life. And And I think that Richard Wright did a very commendable thing in taking the spine of a crime story and writing a book that is a massive social commentary about the black experience in America. This is not a, an uncommon thing. Other crime fiction writers have done this quite often, but for Wright to do it and to be an African-American was, was really something. But there was no way this film was going to get Uh, made in America. You know, they made it with the expectation that, well, we'll get money on the back end when we sell it to America. They they sort of knew they weren't going to be able to go very far in the southern states with this film. But then they were shocked when the distributor just chopped the thing and and took out all the politics, took out all kinds, you know, and it just ruined the movie. So, at least now we have the version that Wright and Chanel intended. When I was watching it, I kept thinking so much of it is what we would call today on the nose about racism and about politics. But the eye-opening part, of course, is that in those days, the outright racism of many of the characters and the political underlay involving um what is it, the Communist Manifesto? Yeah, 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 exactly. None of that in 1950, really. And even the speech by the white guy, the white liberal, is something that you'd never have heard in those days. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's funny to me, you know, because I, I write so much about film noir and that that noir original noir era coincided completely with the anti-communist hysteria and the witch hunt and the House Un-American Activities Committee. So when I watch the film, it's not just the stuff, the racial stuff that I'm like, wow, this would never get by. (laughs) It's all that 
you know, the victim's boyfriend, who is obviously a communist sympathizer and an organizer and very radical, and he's got his tracks and his pamphlets, and he's trying to convince, you know, what should be a 20-year-old black guy of why he needs to join the party uh, because, you know, the, the man will never accept you, blah, blah, blah. None of that would have ever appeared in a American film of that period. Although I will say there were accepted racial subjects dealt with in Hollywood movies at that time. I mean, at the same time uh, this was being made in Argentina, Joseph Mankiewicz was making a film called No Way Out at 20th Century Fox that was one of Sidney Poitier's first movies that basically is about how a single incident leads to a race war in this small East Coast town. And it's a pretty strong movie. I mean, that's a tough movie for people to watch even today. So it wasn't like America was hands off, but Sidney Poitier had a nobility about him that made it okay. The subversive thing about Richard Wright's story is that he is presenting a very flawed protagonist. He's basically saying the system is so rigged against these young black men that he has absolutely no chance. And they don't try to give him any kind of false nobility. He's an angry young man in black skin. He is doomed just because of that. And that's sort of the point of the book. And, and they were never going to make that movie in this country in the 50s. Also, Wright felt the need, I guess, to leave the country because he was under personal attack for being on the left. Is that right? Absolutely. And he was one of a number of African-American artists of the 20th century who found life much more amenable for him in Europe and, and then for a time in Argentina, because he was not subjected to the same kind of prejudice that he found in this country. So he, he was, you know, hail the conquering hero when he goes to France. And when he uh, mingles with the arts community in Argentina, he was seen as a hero. Certainly, he did not get that treatment in his home country. There was a recent article I saw by Ayanna Mathis about James Baldwin and Wright, and Baldwin had some very negative things to say about Native Son. Uh, did they ever meet? I don't know if they ever met, but it's interesting you bring that up because it's very intriguing to me how these things go in the, for lack of a better term, I'll just say the arts community how certain artists come into favor and then fall out of favor. There's no question that Richard Wright, the novel Native Son, was the landmark novel of African-American fiction and helped pave the way for Baldwin. But now the tables have entirely turned. And, and while Baldwin is getting his just due as this great American voice, for whatever reason, his negative comments about Wright have now cast Richard Wright in a very negative light with, within the African-American community, arts community and academic community, which I think is really kind of a shame. It's like, I, and I wonder if this is a peculiarly American thing of like, which camp are you in? Which team are you on? You know, oh, I, I'm with Baldwin. Oh, no, I'm with Wright. It's like, w why is it impossible to see both of these guys as artists in their own right working against the same prejudices and obstacles? On the other hand, it's not like French film 
let's say, in the 50s and early 60s didn't have those kind of splits. It wasn't a racial one, but certainly, you know, the, the rise of people like Truffaut, I mean, they put their noses up at the earlier films in the French canon. Absolutely. I mean, it's a good analogy. And it's one, and it's something that has perplexed me for years because, you know, they were against Marcel Carnet and they were against Yves Allegret and, and uh, Julien Duvivier, you know, and I, I shared those prejudices out of hand for no good reason. And then later on, you see Duvivier's films and it's like, this guy's a magician. He's a cinematic magician. Why were they so against him? You know, bringing that back into noir then, how did the French New Wave view all of those phenomenal noir films uh, that came out in in the 40s, 50s, and well into the 60s, um, things like Les Samurai? Well, Jean-Pierre Melville, who made Les Samurai, is sort of a, a an island unto himself. He wasn't really part of the French New Wave because he predated it. And he had his own studio. You know, he lived atop his own studio. He lived with his mother and his wife. And he just lived for movies. And obviously, you know, I think the younger guys, uh, Jean-Luc Godard and, and Chabrol and Truffaut, I think they all admired him and looked up to him because he was so fiercely independent and he just made his own movies in his own way. And, you know, the French, you know, they worshipped American particularly American B cinema, I think because they enjoyed the resourcefulness that was evident in these movies that were made uh, quickly and for not a lot of money. And I think they, they offered some guiding principles to uh, the filmmakers when they were starting out. Uh, you know, if you watch Godard's Breathless, you can see him sort of imitating a lot of things that were in Joseph Lewis's Gun Crazy, where he's figuring out how to do this you know, for, for a few francs, <laughs> you know, instead of having tracking shots, he puts the cinematographer in a wheelchair and pushes him around the streets of Paris. And they, you know, they're getting the same effect. What about a film like Elevator to the Gallows? Interestingly, you rarely see that included in discussions of the French New Wave. It predates it a little bit, but Louis Mal was not considered part of that subversive movement. He was much more of a traditionalist. But it's it's just interesting because when you watch, if you watch Elevator to the Gallows and then watch Breathless, you see that they have so much in common. The, the, the young kids, the theft of the car leading to a crime. Uh, there, there's a great many things that those films share, except Godard takes a, uh, you know, a more innovative approach to using cinema than Louis Malle did. Andy Muller, one of the things I've been doing during this pandemic, of course, we're all watching a lot of movies. I'm not going to theater. And we're streaming a lot of shows, binge watching. But I've also been trying to catch up on a number of classic films I've never seen. And last week, I finally saw Rome Open City, Rossellini's film. That's almost a noir about the war. <laughs> yes. It is. Now, and did you know that uh, to make it even more noirish, my Film Noir Foundation, we publish a, uh, a quarterly magazine and a contributor to our magazine named John Ranovix did some amazing research and discovered that the American government was very much involved in the creation of those Rossellini films. The OSS, later to be the CIA, were helping fund those 
those movies as part of the, uh, you know, the rehabilitation of Italy post-war. Uh, th that was a big part of it. And I thought that was fascinating. But your, your observation is, is right. A lot of those neorealist films did have a noirish aspect. Earlier, I had mentioned Visconti's Ossessione, and everybody refers to that as like the first neorealist film. I mean, predating Rossellini or De Sica's Bicycle Thieves. And that's a total film noir. It just doesn't look like what we know noir to look like, but it's the postman always rings twice. It's exactly the same story. Uh, before we move on, what influence does John Houseman's play of Native Son have to do with the film? I think it has a tremendous amount to do with the film. I mean, Houseman and Orson Welles had staged a version of Native Son, a stage version, with Canada Lee playing the part. Even Canada Lee was a little too old to play bigger. Uh, but yes, the film version borrowed a lot of the same ideas. It obviously makes it much more cinematic than the stage play was. But there is that uh, dream sequence in, in the film that I'm sure has corollary in the stage play. All, all the people involved said that it was a major trigger. And obviously, the stage play is how Pierre Chanel first came to the material. He saw the stage play before he had read the book and, and said, I, I would love to make a film version of this. I read somewhere else, though it's not in your introduction, that many of the, uh, the black actors in Native Son were actually from Argentina or Brazil and did not speak English, and they were dubbed into English. Is that correct? That is absolutely true. Yeah, if you, I mean, if you watch the film closely, you can really tell. There are some American actors that were brought down uh, to Buenos Aires, but really the call went out for a number of dark-skinned actors who could fake it. <laughs> but it's pretty clear that there's a lot of different languages being spoken on camera and then being dubbed into English afterwards. The acting even from the other actors, isn't great, which is kind of surprising because the director should have done a better job. Or maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. It, it just seemed that, that the acting was a flaw in the film, certainly not the design, which was great. The design is spectacular. Some of the supporting characters, I think, are good, but yeah, there's a certain staginess to the acting that it's hard, it's hard to get around. But I just go back to what you said earlier, Richard. It's a very interesting and fascinating film. When I saw it, my initial reaction was, this is an incredible missing link in cinema history. Because from the time I started writing about film noir and showing the movies, I was amazed at how many African-American fans older films have. This was an eye-opening thing when I uh, joined TCM. And I would go and do the TCM Classic Film Festival and be approached by all of these black movie fans who love the old movies. And it, it was an incredible learning experience for me. And I would always say, what is it that you're getting out of these movies when you're not even represented on screen? Like, how do you relate to this stuff? And I had several people make a really amazing observation to me, which was, well, when you grow up black, you know that the system is arranged against you. And so if you want storytelling and you want entertainment, 
you learn to identify your avatar in these movies. The guy's not going to be black, but you're going to find the next closest thing. <laughs> and so it's funny that a lot of people say, you know, they relate to Jimmy Cagney or they relate to John Garfield because that's the underdog character. And so it's amazing how many African-American movie fans I have met in the past five or six years. I'm not saying, you know, a handful. I'm saying dozens and dozens and dozens. Uh, as I go around the country and show films at my festivals or go to the TCM events, uh, an eye-opener really was. If you think about it, and it just hit me, that a character like Philip Marlowe, who's just on the other side of the law, but a good guy, has so much in common, obviously some of it deliberate, with Easy Rawlins. And Rawlins makes sense because he's black living on that edge. Well, that's exactly what Walter Mosley intended. In fact, I just wrote a piece about this recently, that if you read uh, Raymond Chandler's Farewell, My Lovely, the book starts on Central Avenue, you know, the quote-unquote colored section of Los Angeles, and it, it starts with a scene in a bar that is really racist. I mean, there's no way that you can deny that Chandler's language and the way he describes this place is stone racist. And that's exactly how Walter Mosley's first novel, Devil in a Blue Dress, begins pretty much in that bar. And, and Easy Rollins ends up being the character, in a sense, that Philip Marlowe is sort of mocking in the first chapter of Farewell, My Lovely, and Mosley transforms that character into his private eye detective. And, you know, those, that series of books that Mosley wrote is fantastic. Absolutely fantastic. Landmarks in American crime fiction. I've interviewed him around four or five or six times. I don't, I don't remember how many times Dick and I got him in the studio and then I got him in the studio separately. But it's a history of life as a black person, black man particularly, in the 40s, 50s, and 60s in Los Angeles. Nothing tops it. I completely agree. And he did an amazing thing that very, very few authors have the courage to do, which is he aged his protagonist so that he could write that history. Easy gets older as the books go on. And, you know, as somebody who has published their own crime fiction, I can tell you that publishers don't want that. They want you to just write the same book over and over and over again, and preferably never have the character age. I mean, clearly Walter Mosley saw this as a sociological excursion through uh, African-American life in Southern California. And those, those books are a vital addition, I think, not only to crime fiction, but just to American literature in general. Eddie Muller, film festivals. This was your thing. Suddenly, along comes the pandemic. Now, the last film festival, uh, Noir City, was in January and February of 2020. So it happened what was scheduled, what was canceled, and you said just before we started that you did your first online festival. Yeah, before the curtain fell, the COVID curtain fell, uh, we did an international noir festival in San Francisco and in Seattle, and we got halfway through one in Hollywood, 
And then that was canceled. That was in early March. And, and the rest of that festival got canceled. We have festivals in Austin, Texas, in uh, Boston, in Detroit, in Chicago. All of those got canceled. But then we also, for 12 years, we've been doing one in, in Silver Spring, as I mentioned at the start of this conversation. That's where I first saw Native Sun. And because I have a great history and a very close collaborative arrangement with the AFI, we said, well, let's, let's take this online. Let's, let's do the festival online. And, and, you know, obviously those months in between, we never were quite certain what was going on. And then it wasn't until later in the summer that it was like, we're not coming back anytime soon to live shows, you know? So we did it online and it was quite successful. It was wonderful because people who've always wanted to attend one of our noir festivals, but couldn't just because of the logistics, right? Uh, they, they finally could just join online. And we tried our best for, you know, out of the gate to sort of simulate what makes our festivals unique. Uh, I did an introduction uh, or a colleague of mine would do an introduction to every film to provide some context. And I did a, uh, a live streaming Q&A uh, at the midway point of the festival so people could ask about the movies. And it was good. And we will do it again, not as a I don't consider it a substitute for the festivals, theatrical version of the festivals, but very much a complementary aspect to it. What have you got planned coming up? Anything? Yeah, absolutely. We're working on it right now. I hesitate to say like what the program is going to be because we're at the point where we're trying to figure out, this is all new territory, Richard. This is all new. And one thing that made the international version of the festival come off sort of without a hitch is that a lot of the films were coming from uh, entities that had no qualms about sharing this stuff online, having it streaming. We were showing some very, very rare films from Germany and from Italy and South America. And the owners of those films were happy. You know, like, you want to show the film? Oh, that's fantastic. You know. They didn't know they'd ever make any money with it ever again. That attitude will change when we try to show movies that are owned by studios in this country because they're all trying to figure out how they can maximize their profit. And, you know, in some cases, it's like they expect too much. And in other cases, they expect too little because it's like, well, you know, we're not going to really make money with that. So why would we even bother? And it's like, well, because... I can bring you thousands of people who will watch it. Is that reason enough? It amazes me in this country how often people just bail on an idea because it's not going to make enough money. It'll make money. It just won't make enough money. How did you become host at TCM? I had had interactions with TCM over the years in various different ways. There's some funny stories involved in that. But the most succinct thing I can suggest is I mentioned to a, a highly placed person at the network one time that film noir is the gateway drug to classic cinema. <laughs> that, that's how I described it. And I think that stuck. <laughs> and, I, and I really think that sort of earned me the job because TCM's mission, as I'm, as I'm sure you understand, is to make new fans for old movies. That's what they have to do to survive, right? 
I mean, you might think the average TCM viewer is, is 60 years old uh, and, you know, has a lot of cats or something. <laughs> Doesn't leave the house too often. I don't know. I mean, there are all these stereotypes uh, that I've learned aren't really accurate. But one of the things that is true is they have to skew the audience younger if they're going to exist another 20, 30 years, right? I mean, the, the movie fan that they're going to be looking for 20 years from now is 10 years old today, right? And I, I know this because from doing my own festivals live, I mean, I, I had a family bring their daughter to the festival because they wanted something to do together as a family. And she was 13 years old when she came to the first festival in San Francisco. And now she's 30. She's in her early 30s and she's a professional woman and she still comes back every year. Well, not this year, you know, to, to watch these films with her parents. I have friends who uh, every Sunday morning watch noir. <laughs> there's a lot of those people out there. I know there's a lot of people that call it the church of noir. This is how I spend my Sunday morning, you know. Well, the other thing is that there are so many. I mean, yes, there's out of the past and the ones we all know in a lonely place and so on and so forth. The Locket, which is the weirdest one. Dick Lupoff turned me on to it years ago. That's a great call. That's a great call, Richard. The Locket. You pulled that one out of the air. That, that's a really good film. But there are so many and so many countries have done them. I mean, Japan, right? Well, this is my new thing, okay? So two things. The idea that noir is somewhat elastic, the definition is somewhat elastic, it, it enervates the purists because no matter what I do or what I show on TCM, somebody is going to call in or, or write or post something saying, he doesn't know what he's talking about. That isn't a film noir. And of course, this debate about what is and isn't film noir is precisely what keeps it so interesting for people. Nobody debates about a Western or a musical or a comedy, but you call it a noir, and then everybody has their opinion about, well, is it or isn't it really a film noir, which I, I play with all the time because it's great fun. Like I do with a feature on TCM called Noir or Not. And they'll just throw movie titles at me and I'll make a case for it being noir or not noir. And the international thing you mentioned, that's totally where my interest, most of my interest lies right now, is in understanding and finding uh, these movies that were contemporaneous with what people see as the classic noir era, but were made elsewhere. So like the festival that we just had online, Obviously, there were films from France, but uh, there were films from Italy and Spain and Argentina and Japan, uh, Mexico. They're, they're all over. I, I just had an associate of mine say, I've, I've just found some incredible films from Finland made in the late 40s that are completely noir. And so the Film Noir Foundation is going to pay to have these subtitled in English so that they can, uh, they can be seen in this country. Two other areas I want to talk about. First, noir or not, the grifters. Oh, totally noir. Whenever I see that name and think of that movie, I think of the Trumps. I don't know why. <laughs> I trust uh, the characters in the grifters a little more. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> um, 
Eddie Muller, uh, Film Noir Foundation and the Preservation. What are some of the films that you found and what did you do about them? Um, it's tricky, like knowing where to look and then knowing when to, as I call it, pull the trigger uh, to actually commit to the restoration because you never know if you found the best materials possible. The first film we restored was a movie called The Prowler that was written by Dalton Trumbo and directed by Joseph Losey. So it has a lot of sociological interest because uh, both of those men were blacklisted during the witch hunt and the, and the movie had sort of fallen off the radar. And it was people who really thought that Joseph Losey, when he left America and ended up making films in England, a lot of people mistakenly thought that he was British. And they didn't know that he came from La Crosse, Wisconsin, that he worked in Hollywood, because uh, a lot of those films were, shall we say, disappeared because of his political affiliations. Uh, so The Prowler was by far the best of the bunch. And so it was somewhat of a crusade to find that movie and, and restore it and bring it back. We've done that with several other artists who were blacklisted, like Cy Enfield. He made a terrific movie called Try and Get Me. He, like Losey, ended up moving to England to continue his career. He ended up making a film that the film most people are familiar with, Zulu, with Stanley Baker and Michael Caine. But Dick Powell's Cry Danger is a film that we've restored. Woman on the Run, which was produced by Ann Sheridan and starring Ann Sheridan. We restored that. Uh, Too Late for Tears was a terrific uh, Elizabeth Scott noir film. The way it works, Richard, is that a lot of these films were independently made. Most all of them were independently made movies, financed independently, but distributed through the big studios. And when the distribution deals ended, the studios no longer owned the rights to the film. So they had no financial incentive to preserve the movies or do anything with them. And so they slipped through the cracks. And so our job is to find, if we can, the original elements for these films and to restore them uh, because they don't really have an owner. They're, what, they're what's considered orphaned films. I became obsessed with a TV show that was, I guess, on TNT. And it's gone through four seasons and it seems to me kind of surf noir, and it seems to be very popular, but not among people who normally watch these things. And that's a show called Animal Kingdom. Are you familiar with it? Sure. Yeah, it was it was Australian. I mean, the original movie was Australian, and then they turned it into a a series. Ellen Ellen Barkin was the the matriarch of a crime family, right? It's it's very noir in yeah. its own way, I guess. Very much so. A very noir domestic drama. <laughs> the mother and her criminal brood. Benny Muller, you ghosted slash co-authored a book called Tab Hunter Confidential, and it sticks out because it's unlike any of your other work. Yeah, it was a very worthwhile experience. It, it was quite a responsibility to be entrusted with somebody's life story. The way that came about was that I had written a book called Dark City Dames that was about actresses who made a number of noir films. And Evelyn Keyes was one of the women that I profiled in that book. And Evelyn and Tab Hunter were, were very good friends. And so when Tab was looking for somebody to work with him on his book, Evelyn uh, suggested me and said, this, this guy really, I think, caught 
my essence in fewer pages than it took me because she had written her own book at one point. And that's when I got Tab invited me to, down to his house in Montecito for an interview and we hit it off. And I said, yeah, I'll do this because precisely for the reason you suggested, it was a very different kind of project and it, it required different skills. And I'm, I'm very happy with the way it turned out. The film that was made from the book, I guess, using uh, footage and Tab Hunter himself was quite an extraordinary film, too. Yeah, Jeffrey Schwartz did the did the movie, and it, it was very good. I always like to tease. I hope Jeffrey takes it in the spirit's intent, and I say, yeah, it was a good movie, not as good as the book, but it was, it was, it was good. <laughs> Eddie Muller, so Native Son is going to be on TCM in February as part of Black History Month. People need to check that one out. And uh, VOD in January, that's on KinoNow.com. Do you have any books coming out? Any uh, stories? I do. I'm very excited. 22 years ago, I wrote my first book on film noir, Dark City, The Lost World of Film Noir. And I'm very happy to say it took me a long time to get the rights to that book back. But I finally did. And now a new revised and expanded edition of that book is coming out in the summer, summer of 2021 from Running Press. I couldn't be happier with it. I've done the revised manuscript and we're working on the layout right now and it looks fabulous. And when exactly can people watch you on TCM? I am on Turner Classic Movies every Saturday night at on the West Coast. It's 9 p.m. It's midnight on the East Coast. Um, and then somewhere in between in, in the middle of the country. And then there's what they call an encore broadcast on Sunday mornings. 10 o'clock Eastern time, 7 a.m. West Coast time. I can't imagine being up on Sunday morning at 7 a.m. But a lot of people write to me and tell me that they get up and make their breakfast and coffee and they watch film noir first thing on Sunday morning, whichever coast they're on. When they told me, when TCM offered me this show and they said, well, it's going to be on midnight on Saturday nights, and like 10 o'clock in the morning on Sunday, I kind of said, gee, thanks for giving me such a such a prime slot. But then you realize that this is the modern age and people record the shows and watch them whenever they want to watch them. But it is amazing how many people do treat it as like destination viewing. Like they like to watch it when it's on because it's like a it simulates, uh, you know, going to the movies like Showtime is at eight o'clock, right? Showtime is at seven o'clock in the morning or nine o'clock at night. And so they tune in to watch it when it's broadcast. And we're done. That, that was great. Uh, I had to keep reminding myself that I'm doing a radio show uh, because I could just start talking about film. Well, that's good, right? I mean, that proves that it, it it's flowing. It, there you go. We're just talking. It's so it's so funny that you say that, Richard, because I have a I have a motto that I always use, and uh, and that is bar room, not classroom. <laughs> I want whatever I write or whatever I say to sound like I'm talking to you in a bar. Remember those? Remember when you could go in and talk to people in a bar instead of a classroom? I don't want to come off like I'm lecturing or I'm you know. I just want to be conversational and have people like engaged. Well, one thing I did while you were doing this on my note page is I wrote down obsession, which I've never seen. 
we can't see the Postman film. Uh, I wrote down Cry Danger, Women on the Run, No Way Out, and Odds Against Tomorrow. What would you say is the best foreign noirs? Just give me a couple of them that I could find somewhere. Well, Reefy Fee, have you seen that? Oh, of course I've seen Reefy Fee, yeah. Yeah, well, that's that's one of my favorites. Have you seen uh, Panique, the de Vivier film based on the Georges Simenon novel? Panique? No. Yeah, we, ju- we just showed that as part of our online festival, and the reaction was tremendous. It's the, it's the first film that Duvivier made in France after returning from Hollywood. And it's based on um, a Simenon novel from the early 30s, but it's a, it's a wonderful film about like a misanthrope in this small French village who's framed for murder. And the entire town turns against him because they just like him as the suspect because they don't like him as a person. And it and it's very much about French collaborationists during the war, uh, it is really the subtext of the movie. But it it's quite brilliant. I think De Vivier is a, is an absolute master filmmaker that has never gotten his due. Criterion put that out. They put out Panique, so you can you can see it. Yeah. Well, I have Criterion. I have their channel, and that's what. I've been catching up on is because I, I actually did um, two interviews before uh, PFA, BAM PFA did festivals on Kobayashi and then on Fellini. So I just went on, on my TV and watched my own festival before doing the interview. So I'm, I'm, I'm always looking for that. And some people think I'm nuts, but others are going, wow, what a great idea. Just pick a director and that week, watch their films. Yeah, of course. Yeah, it, it, uh, there, there's all sorts of other stuff. I'm very much hoping to restore some of these Argentine films that we've already preserved. I, I had an opportunity to get my hands on original copies of these movies and had them shipped from Buenos Aires to the UCLA Film and Television Archive. We didn't have the money to do restorations. So we just printed the films and, and printed them with the flaws in and everything because I just wanted to have them. And now uh, digital technology has advanced to the point where we could go back to those copies that we have and wow. fix them digitally. And I'm, I'm very much looking forward to doing that. There's some, some very brilliant work that nobody knows about. This... Um, uh, there's a film that we restored recently called El Vampiro Negro, the black vampire that uh, is a version of Fritz Lang's M that nobody knows anything about. Wow. 1953. And, and it's an extraordinary film. A- absolutely amazing. That was the most viewed film in the online festival and just got tremendous response. It's, it's an absolutely gorgeous film and a, and a revisionist version of M because it features women. The protagonists are the mothers of the victims. It, it's, it's really something. Yeah. It's not the last time we're going to show it online. I'm sure. You've been listening to an interview with Eddie Muller and again, native son will be on TCM in February and video on demand in January, 2001. That's on kinonow.com.
and for more information about Eddie and also uh, a number of essays about noir and other subjects at eddiemuller.com. Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com and feel free to search out other interviews at bookwaves.com or on the kpfa.org website. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast.